Life and is a Scranton Fringe podcast made possible by the Lackawanna and Luzerne Medical Societies in partnership with Park Multimedia. Welcome to another episode of Life and. For our premiere season, this podcast will spotlight a few brave and bold souls who have lived with substance misuse and wanted to share their true stories with all of us. It is our hope that by hearing 100% true firsthand experiences, we can work towards destigmatizing these all too common experiences that occur in nearly every community across the world. Welcome listener, and thank you for joining us. My name is Tinye Verkaitis. I am the co-producer of this podcast, and this is Life and Substance Misuse. I'm excited to introduce you to the featured guest and storyteller for the second episode of Life and, Cheryl St. Germain. Cheryl is an American poet, essayist, and professor. Born and raised in South Louisiana, she is of Cajun and Creole descent and currently directs the Master of Fine Arts and Creative Writing program at Chatham University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Cheryl has lost several members of her family to substance misuse, including her own son. That, dear listener, is what Cheryl will be discussing with us on this episode. So I was born into a family that struggled with substance abuse. I was born in New Orleans in 1954, and my father was an alcoholic, and he died at 59 of liver failure. My brother died in his early 20s of a drug overdose. My other brother died at 41 of a drug overdose. Uh, I have a close relative who is a heroin addict. Um, My brother-in-law was murdered in a drug deal that went bad in New Orleans, stabbed in the neck, um, and he bled to death. And I struggled with drinking for most of my life. I've been sober 11 years. And I moved away from New Orleans when I was in my early 30s because I came to associate that city with a lot of excesses, drinking too much, eating too much, drugs. I also had a period in my 20s where I shot up cocaine, uh, and I I wound up walking away from that, but I've written a lot about it. I'm a poet, and I've written, the last two books have been about addiction and alcoholism and other kinds of substance abuses. In 1984, I gave birth to a a son, and... uh, When he was about six years old, he was diagnosed with attention deficit disorder and prescribed Ritalin. I fought against this, but to no avail. We were told that we were basically having, you know, doing child abuse if we didn't allow him to have this Ritalin. And so he took Ritalin for about 20 years, and it was the first drug that he abused as a teenager. And... uh, he went in a, in a really bad direction. He was really smart, very funny musician. His name was Gray and uh, just very handsome. Um, and But he started having trouble with drinking and drugs. And 
uh, it started out, like I said, with Ritalin and then Adderall, and then he began to use meth and, uh, and heroin. And so we struggled for a long time trying to have a relationship through all of that and my trying to help him. And part of my own getting sober was to model it for him. And um, he did tell me at one point that he admired me and was glad that that I had gotten sober and um, that he loved me very much. And we, we played together. We played video games because he lived in Dallas and I was in Pittsburgh. And so that was one way that we bonded. He taught me how to play World of Warcraft. And um, we, uh, we had a lot of fun doing that together. And he had uh, off and on um, was arrested for various minor infractions but when he'd get out of jail, he couldn't get a job because of these arrests. And um, so he'd go back to using drugs. And um, it just was a kind of a, a spiral that I didn't know what to do about. It was sort of like you could see this train coming down the track. You knew the genes were bad. You could hear the whistle. And there was nothing you could do except uh, offer your love and support. And um so uh, he, he, uh, had, he did die, um, but before he died, about six months before he died, he went into rehab. Uh, he had uh, been doing meth and heroin together, and he attacked his best friend and tried to kill him, and uh, he uh, you know, realized that he needed help. So he went there for a month, and... Uh, seemed to be okay when he got out, but he couldn't get a job anywhere. And, you know, pe people say a lot of bad things about Amazon, but the only company that would give him a job was Amazon. And um, Amazon also gave him life insurance, even though he was only a part-time worker. But he hurt his back while he was working for them, uh, lifting something uh, or other. And we think that that's how he started started using again. And um, so one night, it was actually December 9th, um, 2014, his father called me because his father still lived in Dallas where Gray lived and told me that that he had died. He had had an overdose. He had been at a friend's house who had um, who was a musician friend of his. And uh, he had been trying to stay away from this guy because of... Um, because he sold him drugs, but I guess he just couldn't couldn't resist. Uh, I called him the day after he died, and I screamed at him, and I told him he should be dead, that he, you know, he was responsible for my son's death, and I just I was kind of crazed, you can imagine, and um, and uh, so that was not a very productive conversation. But after that, I I wrote an essay about the whole. Thing and about his relationship with this guy who was someone he really, really respected and who was very respected in the Dallas music scene and who had taught him a lot of stuff about music. And I did uh, send this guy a copy of the essay and we had a kind of text exchange. Um, and, you know, he told me that he was, he was sober. What he had the interesting thing is that when I was screaming at him in this kind of mad, screaming, sick, grieving mother uh, voice. He, he just kept saying to me, he was an addict. He was my friend. He was an addict. He was my friend. And I just thought about that a lot later, you know, 
And um, the other person I should say that I've kept in touch with is a former girlfriend. Um, they had broken up uh, earlier, you know, years before he died, but they kept in touch. She's a really special person, Morgan Everhart. She has, she's an artist in New York now, and she painted a, a beautiful abstract painting that she called Gray, which she gifted me. And it's actually on the cover of the book of poems that I wrote about Gray. And we have kept in touch um, as well. The day that he died in, in, in Dallas, it was uh, the foggiest day in many, many years. All the airplanes were grounded and you, there was not even a mile visibility. And he drove in that fog to his friend's house and was dead by three o'clock this afternoon. And I've it was 50 miles to the friend's house, and I've thought a lot about that. I, This last book I published was a book of essays called 50 Miles. Because when I was about his age, um, I had, as I mentioned earlier, I had been shooting up cocaine, and I just one day woke up, I still don't know why, and I realized that if I didn't stop, I was going to die. And I drove 50 miles to, I was living in Louisiana then, to Hammond, to a friend's house who knew a little bit about what I was going through. And I, I walked away from that. And uh, I never, never went back to, to that again. And so it's just, it was just very, you know, uh, ironic and sad to me that my 50 miles wound up in a recovery and my son's 50 miles wound up in a, in a death. And uh, the other thing that was, was sort of, uh, strange was that a few days before Gray died, we played World and Warcraft together and we were in the game virtually and he wasn't paying attention to the rules. We were in something that's called a, a dungeon and uh, you're supposed to stay with your group in a dungeon. There's five people and uh, he went off by himself and, and he died and I could see on my screen that his character was dead and I couldn't help but think later how he played the game, the way that he lived his life. He didn't, you know, sort of, he was a loner. He didn't uh, hang out with people that much. And he didn't, you know, sort of listen to the rules of the game, so to speak. You know, don't do drugs. Uh, don't smoke. He, he smoked as well. Don't drink so much. And so, I mean, um, it's been, um, what, six years now since he's dead. And, uh, it's been it's been really hard. I've um, kept in touch with his his friends, the friends that he did have, and and I've written a lot about him, poems and and essays, basically because he was a really really sweet and funny and smart and talented guy. And sometimes when we think of substance abusers, we think of them in a particular cliched way. And I guess one of the things I wanted people to know was how you know, he started on this path by being diagnosed with ADHD and being prescribed a drug that given his genetics and his family, he should have never been prescribed. I'm not saying that's the only reason that he wound up dead, but I, I do think it's a really important contributing reason. And I also wanted people to know that, um, you know, the cliches that you, you have in your mind about people who are substance abusers are, are just that cliches and people who die are real feeling human beings. Um, and uh, it's not 
the only thing that, that we should remember about them. Cheryl, thank you so much for sharing your story, your son's story, and your family's story, because really this is a multi-generational story that you've shared with us. A um, couple of things that really stood out for me. Um, you talk about his addiction, your son's addiction being like a cycle that was unbreakable, but in essence, this was kind of replicated in your family as well, right? Except for you broke the cycle. And one thing I thought about was your 50 mile journey to recovery. And I'm just curious what was going through your mind during that drive. And if you think there may have been any similarities between what may have been going through your son's mind during his own 50 mile journey. Well, um, I was in college at the time. I was a, a senior, uh, an English major, and I um, nobody knew this about me, you know, except I worked at night at a bar and uh, I had been doing this so much with, with my boyfriend, who was the one who provided me with the drugs, that I had these little pinpricks on my arm and someone at the bar one of my colleagues said, you, you need to be careful. And I just kind of blew it off. And, uh, I, I remember thinking about gray that, you know, he always thought that he had it under control. He was at my mom's, um, a few months before he died and she's very old and she has a lot of medications in the house. And he rooted through the house and he found bottles of, I think it was Lyrica and Mm -hmm. he took 60 of those pills. And, um, I just couldn't believe that he had done that. And we, we discovered it. He admitted it. He started crying. And he said, he said, it's all right, mom. I, I looked it up on the internet. I, you know, oh, wow. and it's, and then he started crying because he knew how, he knew how stupid that sounded right. actually, right. you know? And um, so I, I know I was, I never wanted to admit that I couldn't control something, but when I looked at these bruises on my arm and I thought about the man I had been involved with, who was also a musician, who had taught me some really cool things. He taught me how to shoot up safely, never share a needle. He played guitar. I played mm-hmm. guitar. He taught me Joni Mitchell tunings. So I was in love with him. And the shooting up was part of that sort of intimate relationship. And although my son didn't have that kind of intimate relationship with his friend, they were very, very close in right in all kinds of ways. And that friend was the only one really who knew all the dark things about himself that, about him that he couldn't share with anyone else. So I'm thinking, you know, I don't know if he, I I don't know if he meant to kill himself. There was a very strange post that he made on Facebook um, a few days earlier, and he, he never posted anything there where it sounded like he was getting ready to call it quits. And so I, I don't know if he just said that that's it. I can't, I can't live in this world anymore, but right. I know that he must've been thinking about this friend and how this friend would be. Um, he would feel comfortable with this friend and he would feel comfortable doing the drugs again. I know he was in pain. I think he's one of those people who would have never been able to survive without some kind of medication 
that would have helped him get through this. But I felt that way because I was going to my friend who had gone through right. a problem with drugs and came out of it. Um, you know, so I, I, in a different way, I think we were both going toward places that we thought were safe. So you talking about your relationship with your boyfriend and how that is where you secretly had this other life, so to speak, we'll say, since most people didn't know about this. It makes me wonder, you had your friend that you could trust and go to for support that day, but how did this affect your other relationships in the sense that a, you had a secret life, I'll call it for lack of a better word. Um, and now you're possibly going back to your regular life and continuing these friendships, or did it feel like you just had to start all over completely? It felt like I had to start all over. The, the truth is that the boyfriend broke up with me before this. And okay. so he, and he was the one, like I said, giving me the drugs. So I had never had to buy any drugs. Right. And I either had to start buying drugs or not, you know, and mm -hmm. it, I was so depressed because I was really in love with this guy and it was just, I didn't know what to do. And, um, honestly for three months I was, I was deeply depressed and probably a, a bit dope sick. Um, but I changed my name. My name was Cheryl. I, I changed my name to Cherie oh. <laughs> and I, I moved to, I had, this job I got in Baton Rouge and I commuted two days a week to Hammond to finish school. And it was, a, I worked in this jazz club and um, I, that's where I wrote, met my first husband um, a few months later. But, but I, I didn't, I hardly spoke. I was just so such in, in such a deep depression. And I think what partly what saved me was what's always saved me poetry and writing and at that time, I was also singing and writing songs and just creative activity. It's, it's what's always kept me believing that there was some kind of hope. I forget who said this. I, it was some social, social activist said that hope is a discipline. And, and I think I've always been pretty disciplined when I put my mind to it. And even though those, 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 months after stopping cold turkey all of that i was dark i was depressed and 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 dark i still i believed it, that i could get through it and um i don't think my son had that same belief well it's interesting because you've talked quite a bit about your personal creativity and it's interesting to me that your rehab in essence was recreating yourself yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had to, I had to, I also realized I was attracted to the wrong kind of men. Yeah. So <laughs> I, that was like a conscious kind of thing that I had to change, but I didn't stop drinking, you know? Yeah. And, um, I didn't, I, I won't say that I was at that time alcoholic, but I started to use alcohol in a way that felt dangerous after, after a time, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so I, th there was that. So one thing I'd like to ask you, and I guess this is kind of my closing question, um, you said something really beautiful when you say people who die are real feeling human beings. And I think a lot of times 
you know, you read the article in the paper or you see a picture and you just think, oh, you know, that junkie. And I hate to say that, but I'm just. Yeah. No, I think a lot of people say that. Yeah. Yeah. So I wonder as a parent who has lost a child, what would you ask people to think when they see someone who may need help? Well, I would ask them first to have compassion and, and to try to, to make that your first response, not judgment. You know, we are a very judging society. Um, you can see it by the number of people who are in our jails and, and prisons, a lot of them uh, from drug, drug abuse. A person, you know, I would ask them to really think, to, to realize that they don't know what goes on in the bones and soul of a person. You're only looking at the outside of a person. Um, nobody says to themselves, you know, when they're 10 years old, I think I'll grow up to be a junkie. You know, I mean, nobody wants that for themselves. But uh, to realize that this is a person in pain and to have compassion and you know, we need to have laws and government that has compassion for people who are suffering in this way. Thank you so much for that. I can tell you that I'm going to carry that idea of not knowing someone's bones and soul around with me for the rest of my life. Thank you oh, thank, for sharing. Thank you, Tanya. Thank you, Cheryl, for your impactful story and for the wonderful conversation. This podcast and its impactful stories like Cheryl's can only grow with your help. Please subscribe, share, and review Life and on whatever platform you prefer to listen on, be it iTunes, Spotify, or any other site. Your support means a great deal. Once again, please take just a moment to subscribe share, and review this podcast so we can not only keep producing more episodes, but so we can expand our reach. Until next time, listeners, remember to breathe and make time for stories, yours and others. others.